Hey guys, how you doing? My name is Blaine, and I will be your hosting guide today for the History Hour, right here on KZMU. And today we're actually going to go to Arches National Park. So Arches National Park actually became a national monument in 1929, and then later on gained its national park status in 1971. But really and truly, it all started in 1896, November 30th, when the first doctor and Moab rode into town. Doc Williams accepted Grand County's offer to be the very first doctor in the Grand Valley, having come from Ordway, Colorado. So he actually serviced anywhere from Hanksville, even out to Cisco, Thompsonville, and Castle Valley, and even all the way out to LaSalle and Paradox. So I guess you could say uh, <laughs> he was pretty busy, and uh, he probably knew the area pretty, pretty well. And he actually got to know the Arches area from early Cowboys, actually and they actually showed him how to use the Arches area as a shortcut to Cisco and Thompson. And so he would go all the way down through the Cache Valley to access those towns a lot easier, totally avoiding Hill Canyon altogether. He actually ended up retiring in 1919 at the age of 66, and this is truly where it kind of all really, really began. Because everyone who came to Moab and they really wanted to explore the area or even get to know the area, they would actually go see old Doc Williams. And a few years after his retirement, Dr. Larry Gould showed up in 1921 for a three-month reconnaissance survey of the geology of the LaSalle Mountains. And, of course, he ended up in Doc Williams' living room. Doc Williams actually took him to an area that he loved the most, and he called it the Windows. And then a few years later, Dr. Gould returned in 1924 to spend a whole summer in Moab. And in that winter, he wrote a letter to Senator Reed Smoot of Utah to make the Windows into a national monument. And then Smoot, in return, wrote Stephen Mather, who was the director of the National Park Service at the time, and he recommended legislation to establish a National Park Service area known as the Windows. And in 1925, there was actually already this survey that was going on that was from a railroad company to go to try to find Alexander Ringhofer's Devil's Garden area that he loved. That way he could popularize it to try to uh, make it into a National Park Service area also. But instead... The surveyors actually found Doc Williams' windows area. So Alexander Ringhofer was actually an immigrant from Hungary, and he was also a prospector. And he went to an area that we know today as the Klondike Bluffs in the Arches National Park. But he called that area the Devil's Garden. He actually never got rich. In fact, he really didn't even do very much prospecting out there because he actually just fell in love with the beauty of the area. And he actually just couldn't really bring himself to uh, destroy it. So rather instead, uh, he wanted to see the area protected. So he got up with a railroad system. That way, that area could gain popularity and people could actually get back there. So the surveyors actually found an area and they called it the Devil's Garden because that's what he called it. But it was actually the wrong area. <laughs> it wasn't even his spot that he wanted. So the spot that he really wanted was, of course, like I just mentioned before, it was the Klondike Bluffs area. So shortly thereafter, in 1929, Arches was declared a national monument, which it was just the Windows area and what we know today as the Devil's Garden. And that was all because of Surveyor Dr. Gould and Senator Smoot, and of course the enthusiasm from old Doc Williams, and even the efforts of Alexander Ringhofer as well. So in 1930, you got Doc Williams, 
and he joins the Moab Lions Club, which back then the Lions Club had a lot of influence, you know, within what goes on. Uh, sometimes either whether it be political or whatever, they ha- did have a lot of influence to basically sort of get stuff done around the town and the surrounding area. So he was not satisfied with the National Monument size at all. Like he wanted to be a lot bigger. So he would go to these Lions Club meetings and he was actually the oldest lion probably in the country at the time. And all he wanted to talk about at these Lions Club meetings was arches, arches, arches. That's all he would talk about was the arches. In fact, even some folks were sort of getting tired of hearing him talk about the arches. But he really, really, really wanted it to become something a lot bigger, a lot better. So with his influence, they actually got a hold of the Civilian Conservation Corps. So Arches National Monument was actually just some really rough, tough horse trails and and some really hard-to-follow footpaths just to get to certain areas in the windows and the Devil's Garden. So it really wasn't popular. In fact, its very first year becoming a National Monument, it only had 500 people the entire year. And so because of Doc Williams' uh, influence, uh, the CCC actually arrived in 1933, December of 1933. So you guys know (laughs) it's pretty cold in december here so i can only imagine them coming here saying are we about to do all this stuff so basically the civilian conservation corps was to survey the boundaries of the national monument lay out roads establish hiking trails and even map out potential campgrounds and they called it the arches scientific expedition and their survey leader was actually a gentleman named mr beckwith and he took to dr williams for advice because you know dr williams knew the area and with dr williams was super enthusiastic he was actually in his early 80s and dr williams actually showed him places and how to get to certain areas best and mr beckwith basically just went wherever dr williams told him to go and they formed a pretty good bond and of course dr williams wasn't satisfied with the size of the national monument to begin with and as a result of all this the boundary lines actually got a lot bigger and they included areas that we know today as the courthouse towers the school marms bloomers which is aka delicate arch and they even found alexander ringhofer's original devil's garden and i'm pretty sure he had something to do with that and they actually call that area the palisades later renaming it the klondike bluffs And after a few years, it was done and actually expanded. (laughs) There was a dirt road that was actually established, and hiking trails were complete, and even a campground was put in right there at the windows area, which is where today we know there's a nice big old loop parking lot with a lot of traffic. So in 1938, President Franklin Roosevelt actually officially expanded the park from its seven square miles originally to over 34,000 acres. And of course, he got a hold of old Doc Williams, And he asked him to send him a pen, but Doc Williams didn't even own a fountain pen. You know, this guy was old school. So his youngest son, Mitch, actually had a fountain pen from school, and they mailed that to the White House. So on December 15th, 1938, Dr. Williams actually received a letter from the White House. It said, My dear Williams, it gives me great pleasure to sign the proclamation extending the boundaries of Arches National Monument, Utah, thus saving for prosperity the magnificent scenic area now included within the monument. Through Secretary Ix, I have heard of the cooperation you have given the National Park Service and the Department of Interior in bringing the successful consumption of the project to enlarge the boundaries of Arches National Monument. On behalf of the people of the United States, I thank you for your assistance in this instance and congratulate you on your 40 years of devotion to the conservation of the scenic heritage of the Arches region and other outstanding areas in Utah and the neighboring states of Colorado and Arizona. 
to live a long and useful life such as yours and still do human service for the cause of the conservation in one's 84th year is a record of which many of us in public life envy you. As I sign this letter with your own pen handed me for the purpose of Secretary X, I wish you many continued years of fruitful conservation endeavor. Yours truly, Franklin Roosevelt. So now we have this official road going into Arches National Monument, and it actually followed what we know today as Willow Springs Road, and it went right up to the Bounce Rock and the Windows area. And from there, folks could actually hike or take a horse all the way down to the courthouse towers. And then the road continued just right down into the Cache Valley, where the trailhead for the Delicate Arch is, and then the road continued on from there and went all the way up to the Devil's Garden area. But right down there at the trailhead, of Delicate Arch is a little cabin. I'm gonna tell you guys just who used to live in that little cabin. So this is actually the Wolf Ranch. And John Wesley Wolf was actually a Civil War veteran and he fought for the Union and he was from Ohio. And his leg was actually injured in the Civil War because a big cannon actually fell on his leg down in some mud and stuff. So he actually walked with kind of a limp. Well, after the Civil War, he really just kind of wanted to come out west and homestead and, and have a farm and stuff. But his wife was actually not about it whatsoever. She said, nope, no way. I am not going out west. You can go, but I'm not. So eventually, um, that's exactly what he did. Him and his son, Fred, actually came out here in 1898 down into the Cache Valley. Right there on the Salt Wash, which is a natural spring that flows out and goes all the way down to the Colorado River. So when they got into the Cache Valley, they built this little shack basically it didn't even have a wooden floor in fact it was a dirt floor and they built that right there on the salt wash and they grew melons and vegetables and all sorts of different types of little crops and they even had a lot of cattle that roamed the entire cache valley area and for several years um, mr wolf actually would write back to his wife and he would even send her money because he was getting a little pension you know from from the united states military for his service he would also write letters to his daughter and her children. He actually encouraged his daughter and her husband and their two kids to come out. And that's exactly what they did. They said, you know what? Sure, we'll go out and we'll just kind of give it a try. If it doesn't work out, we'll just come right back to Ohio. So in 1906, his daughter Flora, her husband Ed, and their two kids, Esther and Farrell, came to live at Wolf Ranch. And let me tell you, she did not like the conditions whatsoever. She said, I am not going to live somewhere where there's not even a wood floor. She's like, you want me to live on a dirt, like a dirt floor? No, I'm not going to raise my kids on a dirt floor. So Mr. Wolf, uh, really wanting her to stay there, actually went down to the Colorado River, got a whole bunch of cottonwood trees, and they brought them up there, and they built the cabin that stands today. So his daughter Flora and her family lived in that little cabin for two years. And during that two years, she was tired of eating off of these old tin plates that miners would use, you know, while they were prospecting and stuff, because that's all they had. And she wasn't happy about that. And for Christmas one year, Mr. Wolf actually rode up into Moab, and he went to the Sears and Robot catalog and bought her 100-piece china set. So... I think, uh, you know, she was pretty satisfied with that. She actually had a camera, and she was actually one of the very first people, probably, to take a photo of the Delicate Arch. So she actually uh, wanted to send her kids to school, so her, her husband, and her two kids, Esther and Farrell, they took off, and they actually moved into Moab. And they lived in Moab for a couple of years, and... You know, Mr. Wolf is getting on up there in years now, and uh, he's nearing his 70s, and he just kind of wants to be around his family. You know, it's pretty lonely down there in the Cache Valley. I mean, you only rode into town maybe once a month. If you're lucky, you saw visitors ever so often. 
So he actually ended up selling the entire ranch to the Turnbow family, and he moved into Moab, and he lived there for about a year or so, and the entire family just took off and went all the way back to Ohio, where he passed away from old age. And Mr. Marv Turnbow, who bought the ranch, uh, he actually became the very first custodian of Arches National Monument. And so they lived there for quite many years and eventually uh, selling the ranch and then the ranch ended up in the government hands and it was actually included into the National Monument later on. Okay guys, I'll be right back actually. Um, and whenever we get back, we're gonna talk about in the mid 1950s, the National Park Service in Washington actually launched this thing that they called Mission 66 where they wanted to improve all national park roads and facilities. So uh, go grab a drink, go grab a snack and we'll be right back guys. As I wander on by the evening shades to watch the shadows play, then I listen to the call of the whippoorwill as he sings his evening lay. All is whippoorwill to his song, whippoorwill as it floats, whippoorwill hey long, whippoorwill so brave, whippoorwill and gray, whippoorwill as he sings, whippoorwill his lay. Hey guys, welcome back. And uh, if you're just tuning in, my name is Blaine and I'm the host and guide here for the History Hour on KZMU. And we're talking about the history of Arches National Park today. And here we are in the mid-1950s, the National Park Service in Washington, they're launching this thing that they called Mission 66, where they want to improve all National Park Service areas and facilities by the year 1966. So therefore, roads and Arches National Monument were laid out and mapped out to actually be paved for better access to visitors. 
For nearly 20 years, the roads were still so rough. Dirt trails were often impassable, and folks were still getting stuck in the mud. In fact, Arches General Superintendent Bates Wilson, who took his position in 1949, he actually recalled once that whenever he would send visitors into the monument confines, he wasn't even sure he was going to even be able to even get them out. And one time he even had to put chains on his Jeep wheels and he got a tow rope and even had to ferry 22 stranded vehicles across the flooded courthouse wash. So then after that, he put up the sign that said, do not cross wherever water is running. But of course, that did not solve that problem whatsoever. And even with as easy riding as we have it on the really nice pavement up in the park right now, there's still actually a couple of areas where you'll see signs that say impassable when wet, do not cross when flooded. So in early 1956, the road plans were underway and the beginning stages were actually being laid out. And this was a warning that the monument's operator general, Merle Winborn, gave his new park ranger, Edward Abbey. And this was on his first day on the job, way up there in the old tin government house trail that he occupied for two years that used to sit right near the balanced rock. And Edward Abbey was actually a naturalist and he referred to this plan of development as a sinister master plan. And he was not in favor of it whatsoever. He did share the same deep love of the land just by everybody who was actually struck by its beauty, but he was not in favor of the road. So that's kind of where he differed from everybody else because he didn't really want these certain areas, you know, to be excavated and paved and make it easier for a lot of people. He thought that a natural area like this should be difficult to get into. That way there's not a million people running around there. Although General Superintendent Bates Wilson was in favor of getting who he called the man in the pink Cadillac into the park on paved roads, he somewhat shared Edward Abbey's view. And this is the reason why we have these backcountry areas in the parks today where the roads remain unimproved. That way folks actually have an option to go to a place of peace and solitude within a national park where there's actually not a lot of people. And so folks today can actually hire a guide with the knowledge and the vehicle capable of safely making the journey back into these areas. So back to 1956, the road was still in a lot of chaos. It was under construction and it was in its very, very, very first stages of early development. And so you got old Doc Williams. He's actually 102 years old at this point. And he went to General Superintendent Bates Wilson. He said, I want you to take me up there so I can make sure that they put that road in the right spot. And Bates you know, he couldn't refuse the father of arches. So he granted his request and they loaded up in Bates Jeep and they headed on up. And as the dirt and rocks of the under construction road crushed underneath the tires, I have no doubt, I have no doubt whatsoever that Doc Williams actually looked out at the landscape beyond all the excavator machines and people hard at work who probably stopped and turned around, gazed upon the father of arches being ushered into the park by the general superintendent. And he probably had some flashbacks of his first horse rides of the old days of making his doctorly visits down to Cisco and Thompson. And uh, he probably heard the laughter coming off the sandstone walls of those old cowboy campfires that he used to share. And he most likely remembered him standing there all alone, countless times dreaming of his beloved windows there to be protected and adored. So they have finally arrived at the balanced rock and Dr. Williams grabs his cane, he gets out and he stands there and he probably looks right back at the courthouse towers area where the road was to lay and uh, totally satisfied, totally happy. And his silence definitely said it all. In fact, not even a word was hardly even spoken this entire trip. And, you know, I feel like he probably knew he, he probably knew that this was going to be his last time in the place that he actually loved the most. And Dr. J.W. Williams actually ended up passing away not long after that, just 10 days after his 103rd birthday. But he would definitely always forever will be remembered as the father of arches. 
So I really love the fact that the future father of Canyonlands was taking the father of Arches up there one last time. So Bates Wilson actually accepted his position in 1949 to be the general superintendent of Arches National Monument and Natural Bridges National Monument. And later on in 1949, uh, Bates was actually kind of getting to know the area a little bit better. Um, and there was kind of a need for folks to kind of get shown around this super primitive landscape. So this is before the pavement and everything. Bates Wilson's son, his name was Tug. Um, he actually recalls this right here in an interview. So I'm going to read this interview to you guys real quick. And uh, this is an interview done by Lloyd Pearson, actually. And he interviewed uh, Alan D. Tug Wilson of Moab, Utah. And August 30th, 1993. So Lloyd Pearson says, We're sitting here in beautiful downtown Spanish Valley with Alan D. Wilson. This is Lloyd Pearson speaking on the 30th of August, 1993 at 7.45 in the evening. We're going to talk about the good old days. Last night I was very intrigued when you told me about the Tug Wilson Escort Service. And then Tug says, Taurus. It was, it was a guiding service. It, it was Taurus. And then Pearson said, Yeah, uh, so you got here in 1949, you said, huh? And then Tug said, yeah, and, and the staff of Arches National Monument consisted of Earl Worthington and Merle. And that was the whole full-time staff. There may have been one seasonal ranger the first summer, but I can't recall the name. Dad spent most of the whole spring and summer learning about the area, and I had good fortune of following him around. Then my mother got the bright idea, why don't we put a little 5 by 7 card, which I think probably Bish Taylor printed out, which said, Tug Wilson Guide Service, 50 cents an hour. We probably did this around July of 1949. Then Pearson asks, did you make much money then? And Tuck said, yeah, I made money. Sure, there were a lot of people who wanted someone to guide them up to like the Mastodon to guide them to Park Avenue. The entrance road did not even switch back behind the rock house back in those days. It was quite a hike to Park Avenue. So I was often hired to carry the water or the cameras to Double O or to Delicate. In those days, it was quite primitive, and the Moab area was very difficult compared to what visitors had experienced elsewhere. Also, the visitors were probably 50 years old and older. During these outings, I perfected the ability to actually walk backwards on the trail to talk to visitors as I guided them. And then Pearson asks, well, you were 13 or 14 years old, you say? And Tug answered, 13 and maybe 14 to the next summer. Couldn't drive. You got a special license of some sort when you were 14 if I think you needed to drive to do your work. But that was just the beginning of my keen interest in getting to know the area. So guys, right there in that interview that, that Tug did with Lloyd Pearson, uh, we actually see that Tug actually had the very first guiding service that was in Arches National Monument in 1949 at the age of 13 years old. So his father, the general superintendent, Mr. Bates Wilson, he was a people's man. I'll tell you what, the town of Moab, they were really digging this guy. It was because his enthusiasm was just so contagious. You know, Mr. Bates Wilson was actually kind of unorthodox. Uh, he actually preferred to wear his blue jeans and a straw hat over his Park Service green uniform on his daily work routine. He made a pretty good point once, and someone asked him about that. He was pulling people out of muddy washes, and he actually had the very first search and rescue team that would go and rescue uh, visitors in the National Monument and the surrounding areas. He even had to repel to save some people sometimes. So he was a pretty busy man in that unforgiving landscape. And this is what he said about the whole uniform ordeal. He said that what he was doing actually couldn't be done with shiny shoes and shiny buttons. But of course, he cleaned up pretty well for events, meetings, and special visitors. And speaking of visitors, Mr. Wilson was all about gaining visitors to Arches National Monument. In fact, he saw opportunity for the tourism industry early on, and he really wanted to see it grow. 
And one of the things that he was actually noticing that was harming this potential industry growth was actually the residents of Moab. So when he and his family actually arrived here in 1949, there was only 1,200 people living in the Moab Valley. And the only industries here were orchards and cattle ranches, and lots of folks living in Moab were pretty busy with their work, so they didn't share a huge enthusiasm with the National Monument or the surrounding area. Some even saw it as just a backwoods National Park Service outpost, and outsiders passing by would stop on Main Street to get gas or maybe grab some food from a diner, and the typical conversation probably went like this. They probably said, uh, hey, uh, what's there to see out here? And a local would probably say, meh, not much. Is the uh, Arches place uh, worth going to? Nah, it's probably just a bunch of rocks up there. So Bates actually saw this issue, and with the cooperation of the Moab Chamber of Commerce, he actually started a tourism school. And he would show slideshows of the area, and he would actually educate the locals. And they would even do some role-playing and act out scenes on how to talk to travelers passing by. He also had trivia in the local newspaper. But his enthusiasm was so contagious. So guys, imagine like you're living in the valley at this point and you've got like a farm and it's the mid 1950s and there's this nice, big, beautiful picture slideshow presentation going on in town. That would be a pretty big deal. So a lot of people would go to that. So that's kind of sort of how people started getting interested in the area because they were actually seeing these really beautifully done photographs on this slideshow. Okay, guys, we're going to take another short little break, and uh, whenever I return, uh, we'll actually be talking about in 1958 when the new pavement gets complete and the, and the new entrance is finally open. So stay tuned. I'll be right back, guys. Hey guys, we are back, and if you are just tuning in, my name is Blaine, and I'm the host and guide here on the History Hour, and today we're actually talking about the history of Arches National Park. And so now it brings us to 1958, when the new pavement and the road was put in, and the visitor facilities were finally complete, and now we've got a brand new entrance. So I was looking at a map of Arches National Monument before the pavement was put in, and it looked completely different than what it actually does today. Um, the original entrance went in through what we know today as Willow Springs Road, and it actually came out right at the Bounce Rock in the Windows area. There was a hiking trail that probably went all the way down to the Courthouse Towers and Park and the Park Avenue area. And the old road continued down to the Cache Valley um, and had a little side road down to the Delicate Arch Trailhead, and the main road continued to the Devil's Garden. So only one more task had to be complete, and that was actually the cutting of the ribbon. And what better person to do this than Miss Lavina Williams? She was the wife of Dr. Williams, who had passed away two years prior to this. So she steps up to the ribbon with a pair of scissors, and she was to cut the ribbon in place of her late husband. What an amazing way to officialize Dr. Williams' dream. So she, she was actually accompanied by several Old Lions members in honor of old Doc Williams. Also joining her were several Park Service staff and Mr. Bates Wilson and even town officials and even politicians were there as well. And thus officially opening the newly improved Arches National Monument. 
So I'm going to recap the visitors here because I want to talk to you guys just real quick about the history of the number of visitors in Arches National Monument and Arches National Park as well. Um, so in 1929, as I'd mentioned before, uh, there was only 500 people who actually went into the National Monument its very first year open. And uh, because of the Great Depression, and in 1934, only 275 visitors. And of course, it steadily grew to the year prior to the new pavement and the new entrance. Arches saw 25,000 visitors. And then after the pavement, new entrance, and new facilities were put in place the year following, almost 60,000 visitors, so it more than doubled. And a few years later, it broke its 100,000 visitor mark in 1962. In 2010, Arches saw for the very first time 1 million visitors in a single solid year. And most recently in 2019, 1.6 million visitors, and it is still growing. So after the new road was put in place, you know, Mr. Bates Wilson, the general superintendent, definitely had his work cut out for him. So we all know how treacherous uh, that, you know, a lot of uh, visitors and certain people would consider the hike up to Delicate Arch. You know, it's, it's pretty steep. It's a uh, slick rock surface. Not a lot of people can actually get up there, and uh, that was becoming a problem back in the day because folks really, really wanted to see it, so they were really pushing themselves, and a lot of, a lot of trouble happened on the trail back then. So Mr. Bates Wilson saw this as an, an issue, of course, and uh, he wanted a way for who he called, once again, the man in the pink Cadillac to be able to see the delicate arch. So we needed a viewpoint, and uh, back then the, the road didn't even go to the viewpoint. It just stopped right there at the trailhead. And Bates Wilson, being a little unorthodox, he wasn't about to wait for several years for the, for the guys out in Washington to give him the okay to build a little mile stretch to get to a viewpoint to see the delicate arch from a distance. So he actually just took it upon himself and got it done. And he actually almost lost his job over that. But when these officials actually traveled that road and being able to see the delicate arch from a viewpoint, they were actually kind of on his side. So uh, it definitely uh, worked out for us. So we've got this beautiful national monument. And now the delicate arch is easily accessed from a viewpoint. And the visitors just kept growing and growing and growing. So many numbers inside the park that in 1971, on November 12th, President Nixon actually signs Public Law 92-155, changing arches from a national monument to an official national park. And the following year, Mr. Bates Wilson actually retired from being General Superintendent of Arches National Park now and Natural Bridges National Monument. Uh, also, the newly uh, Canyonlands National Park that uh, was established in 1964. So guys, uh, now that we have Arches National Park officially, I'm just going to go over just a couple of things uh, that's happened since then. There was actually some filming that actually went on within Arches National Park, and one of those main movies was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, they started out right uh, in Park Avenue, and then they actually uh, rode the horses right in front of Balanced Rock, and they ended up underneath of the double arch that is in the windows area. In fact, you can see him and his friend uh, climbing up inside of the double arch where they found a cave, but there's no cave up there. So <laughs> that was just all, you know, some pretty cool uh, Hollywood magic there. And it's pretty interesting. Whenever you see a film or a picture of the Balanced Rock, you can pretty much gauge how old that is, actually. Uh, because sitting right next to it was a smaller version of the Balanced Rock, and they used to call that chip off the old block rock. And that actually fell in the winter of 1975 through erosion. 
And September 1st, 1991, a huge giant rock actually fell from the landscape arch, which we all know is like over 300 feet long. It's like 88 feet tall, and it's pretty thin. It's actually extremely delicate. And that arch was actually named by Mr. Frank Beckwith in the 1934 Arches Scientific Expedition. And what's so odd is back in 1991, somebody was actually there with one of those giant camcorders and they actually recorded that rock falling off of the landscape arch. And landscape arch is so delicate that in 1972, the Air Force actually suspended all supersonic flights over the entire region because they thought that the noise strength would be so great that it would cause the arch to actually collapse. And also not too far from there, um, August 4th, 2008, you have the wall arch actually completely and totally collapsed. And uh, there were some folks uh, that were staying at the campground in the middle of the night. They heard this loud thundering noise coming from the, that area. So one of my favorite things about the history of Arches National Park is basically the effect that this gorgeous landscape has on people. Um, and it's definitely an honor and a privilege to be able to guide within this national park for a local company here in town. And I remember my very first time in Arches National Park, I was completely just blown away. And there were certain areas where I'll be honest with you, it was so beautiful, it you know, kind of almost brought a tear to my eye, you know? And, and it's such a cool thing with guiding people back there is that you just get to see how awestruck that people get. And for me, it's kind of like I'm reliving my very first time out there all over again. And I can't, but I can't help but to think, you know, folks like old Doc Williams and Alexander Ringhofer and Mr. Bates Wilson and the Conservation Corps and all these people that had such an effect to create the Arches National Park here that we have today. It was all because of what the landscape did to them. The landscape is just so beautiful and it is so special and there's no other, literally no other place like it in the world. In fact, people come from all over the world just to see the Arches within Arches National Park. Okay, everybody, I just want to thank you so much for joining me here on the History Hour. I also want to thank the Moab Museum. And if you guys haven't had a chance to go down and check out the newly remodeled facility, I highly recommend it. They are open from Tuesday to Saturday from 12 to 8 p.m. And once again, my name is Blaine, your host and guide for the History Hour. Join me the last Monday of every month from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. right here on KZMU.